From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey guys, welcome back to Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Bonnie McBird, author of Art in the Blood, a new Sherlock Holmes book. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. Absolutely. The book was great. Oh, I'm glad. I'm it was fast-paced. I liked it <laughs> okay. in a great way. <laughs> um, you know, when I was reading it and thinking about Sherlock Holmes, he's amazingly present in modern culture today still. Yes. He's probably the most popular fictional character of all time. It's over 130 years now. You, uh, oh, Not just a detective, a character in general. Of, of all time, a fictional character, he's probably the most popular, the most well-known. Wow. I mean, even like thinking about it today, like Benedict Cumberbatch is playing him, Robert Downey Jr., right. elementary TV show, the Ian McKellen one. Um, David Arquette is in L.A. right now doing a live yes. stage show. I'm going to see him tomorrow. Are you? Okay. Well, I won't ask you how it is. <laughs> we'll do a follow-up. Do you have like a favorite portrayal of uh, Sherlock today? Oh, I, well, there's several that I love very much. Yeah. Actually, quite a few. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch is fantastic. I love the modern version. I didn't think I was going to like that because I'm kind of a traditionalist, but I love him in it. It's so, you know, wonderful new take on it. Uh, I thought Robert Downey Jr. did a phenomenal job. He's a great actor. Yeah. And he brought something else to the role, which I loved. And Jude Law was a wonderful Watson. Um, but I, I think probably the most traditional, the most like the stories is maybe the Jeremy Brett, especially in the early part of that Granada TV series that he did. Oh, I see. I you read you wrote somewhere too. I read that Sherlock has to be hot. <laughs> Why is that? Um, has to be hot. Yeah. Well, I kind of think of him as a very sexy man because uh, in the in the BBC Sherlock they have this funny statement: "Brainy is the new sexy." Well, I personally have always been really attracted to smart people. So I'm married to a computer scientist, for example. So Sherlock Holmes is sexy to me because he's really smart. Okay, so you don't mean in the, the you mean untraditionally. And both, I guess both. You just mean hot to you, actually. It's a very objective. <laughs> I <laughs> Not think, objective. Actually, I think he's hot to a lot of women. Lot, okay, well, he's 130 years. It's like, that will tell us yes. Do you, how similar is Sherlock Holmes today to the one that Conan Doyle wrote? Well, I actually... Uh, aimed with my book to be very true to Conan Doyle. Uh, even though I've seen many, many iterations since then, you know, I mean, we, you know, the Basil Rathbone when I was a little kid watching black and white TV, you know, uh, and even the old William Gillette uh, play was recently re-released as a movie. They found it after it had been lost for, I don't know, 80 years or something. So there's many, many actors that I've seen portray Holmes, but to me, the original, I fell in love on the, on the page. I read the entire Conan Doyle works of Sherlock Holmes when I was 10, and I just fell in love, and I was so interested in this character. So in Art and the Blood, I, I really tried to, um, to be true to that, to actually emulate Doyle, his style, and really be true to the characters. So for example... There are very serious Sherlockians out there. I'm kind of one myself, actually, but there are people way more serious than me who have done things like chronologies of where all the cases would have happened in time and so forth. So I picked a time where there wasn't a case to slot mine in. So I wanted mine to not contradict canon in any way. By canon, I mean the actual works of Conan Doyle. Of course. And then how do you stay true to Doyle, though, but still like update it? Because it's a very different audience today reading the books. 
That is a that is the key question. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, interestingly enough, Conan Doyle is still readable today because he his style was quite different from his contemporaries. So, for example, he while it's first person in the voice of Watson, almost all of the stories there's 56 short stories and four novellas, um, and they're almost all told in first person as Watson, except for a couple. And Watson's voice is very vibrant and alive. He's a soldier. He's a doctor and a soldier. He doesn't, you know, pontificate. He doesn't get wax poetic about things. He tells the story. So there's quite a lot of forward movement, what we call narrative drive and screenwriting, uh, in the stories. Plus, uh, Conan Doyle used a lot more dialogue in his stories than his contemporaries did. So it feels, even now, very fresh to us. So for me to emulate him, uh, it wasn't really hard to imagine speaking to a modern audience and yet staying very, very close to Doyle. I did a few little things. <laughs> uh, I hesitate to say them because then people will be looking for them, but I, I did occasionally use sentence fragments, which they didn't use then. Um, but I also was writing a novel rather than a novella, and a novel is long form, and it requires sort of more narrative push the way a movie does. Right. And I, so you got to make it more complex. Is that what you're saying? More complex. Because it's a longer format? Yes. Yes. It's like a suspension bridge kind of over a, a wider river because it's longer. So it needs more posts. And p those posts are, um, they're kind of like the, um, the, the tentpole scenes in a screenplay, for example. They're, they're moments of great emotion, of great action. Uh, and you need more of them for a longer piece. Uh, also, um, the short stories that he wrote, they were really good mysteries. And some of them, they're actually in many ways more character pieces than mysteries. But um, And they're definitely adventures because there's a lot of action in them. There's usually just one moment of action, though, in each one. Yeah. But... but um, but they, um, but they all have a lot of humor in them too, and that's another way that Doyle is very contemporary. And you don't think of that when you think you think it's going to be stuffy, and they're all oh, Watson. Blah, blah, blah. But no, they're they're actually hilarious. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is that you were not trying to reinvent this character at all. No. You're just trying to honor his legacy. Yes, very much so. I mean, it's amazing too that his. I mean, I keep harping on it. His legacy is as strong as it is. It's just such a great character. There's so many reasons for that. For first of all, I mean, he's a complicated man yeah he's the he's in a way the first superhero because uh he has powers that we don't m normally have you know his powers are brain powers but they do seem almost super normal and uh, but he's vulnerable you know he's got his achilles heel he's got some issues <laughs> yeah and then he has this very normal friend that you know he's just he's a wonderful lens to watch this man through and i think that his friend watson is almost the key to his staying power just because watson's narrating it yes and so he he has this admiration for sherlock and we're shown that but we're not told too much about him and so right. that mystery about who is sherlock has like kept us interested yeah, I believe. I, th I think you're right. He he, uh, it's it's his own mystery that draws us to him because there's holes in his history. We don't know his childhood, we don't know his education, and we don't know his feelings about women. There, that's up to a lot of debate. <laughs> and so, uh, because we have these holes, or there are these holes in the character, and even Watson, as you said, is is kind of doesn't know everything, and and we. Um, 
we fill we fill in those holes in a way with ourselves. Yeah, and I think that's why when we see Mycroft, that's his brother's name, right? Mycroft. Yes, Mycroft. When we see Mycroft, it's so exciting because it's like, oh, Keto's childhood. Right. Like, give us something. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a little thing that I did in here. I um, in the original canon, there's not a lot of scenes with Mycroft, and um, the, you you get that there's a little bit of one-upsmanship between the brothers. I mean, that's pretty much it. And the, also that Mycroft is an extremely powerful man in the government. He has some kind of secret position that you know that he he has a lot of control uh, in BBC Sherlock they they added a little layer onto that of more animosity between the brothers and maybe a little danger and threat between them I have to admit that I took a little of that from I took some inspiration from okay that. that wasn't in Canon but it was hinted at only the slightest amount but is it in Canon that he is perhaps not as like physically fit as oh Sherlock? yes it, it is. definitely oh, okay. definitely is in I canon. didn't know if that was like a slight against him no no <laughs> that's that's very much he was he's very sedentary actually sedentary he's like a big fat guy such a PC way a PC way of saying it <laughs> sedentary a big fat guy <laughs> and he doesn't move around a lot I mean this is this is his description oh, yeah. not quite in that vernacular but Yes, he's he's big and heavy, and he moves slowly, and he likes to not move around. It, it says that he doesn't like to get out of his chair much. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> Just kidding. Talking about what we don't know about Sherlock, do we know how him and Watson got connected and became friends? Yes, we definitely know that from canon. Um, the uh, Stanford, who was a friend of Watson's, uh, is it has met up with Watson. Watson has just come into town and to London. He's been uh, invalided out of the army, and he's on a kind of a minimal pension. And he's looking to share a flat with someone, and um, and sort of find himself again. He's kind of depressed. He's recovering from these injuries. And Stanford said, oh, "I know some guy. He's a little weird, but you might want to room with him." And so they go to Bart's and they introduce. Uh, Stanford introduces the two of them, and then you have that famous line: uh, "You've been in Afghanistan. I perceive you've been in Afghanistan. I perceive." So, um, and he gets you know he immediately clocks everything about Watson. <laughs> oh, fascinating! Yeah. I think that this. I'm only saying because you're a female writer, and I'll like admit to that. But none of the scenes would have passed like the Bechdel test. In the sense, um, do you know what that is? No, it's no. Um, Alison Bechtel's test if that there must be two female characters and they must oh. have a conversation that don't doesn't revolve around a man. Oh, right. But in that sense, so you're only writing the format that Doyle gave to you. Right. Was that ever something that crossed your mind like to add or is that not a concern? Um, well, yes, it is in a sense. Um I am a feminist, and I grew up in the, the formative era of feminism. But um, when I set out to write Sherlock Holmes, I set out to write uh, a great cracking good story, a great cracking adventure story without a lot of other parameters, following the best I could um, the artistic goals of, of emulating this incredibly good writer. Now, that being said, now I don't care about the Bechdel test, honestly. I really don't. <laughs> what I care is a great story and great characters. I do have, I think, a really strong female character oh, in here. And I love her. And in fact, there's going to be probably a strong female character in everything that I write. I've got a, I'm doing book two for them now. Um, and it, I can't help it. She walks into the room and she just is. So I don't really... As an artist, I, I try not to think politically that way. I try to think about story and character. And so in that sense, I'm I'm very proud of her. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think she's a fascinating character. I think that's interesting, though, that you as a writer and a 
sounds like you have very strong political beliefs as a feminist that you don't try to like throw that into your work usually it's there's not that big a separation when i'm talking to people Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't feel that way about it. I mean, I, you know, like I'm, I'm. And there's not like a right or wrong at all. <laughs> no, no, you know? no. I, I, each person can only write the way they feel, you know, and, um, I love the, this character. I love this friendship between the two men. I love them. Uh, and so what was fun for me was to thrust them in an adventure where their friendship was challenged, their, you know, physical beings were challenged. And in fact, you know, Holmes is, uh, his feelings for women are, are something that's one of the large mysteries about him and things that are debated, that's debated now for 130 years. Uh, I'm sorry, are you like implying like homosexuality or what are you saying? Um, well, women? many, there have been many theories uh, about Holmes. One is that he, he and Watson have a homosexual relationship. One is that he's, you know, he sort of states in canon that he just has no feelings for women because it gets in the way of his work. Um, and I frankly take that kind of at face value. Um, I think he's uh, abstinent by choice uh, because uh, for whatever reason, it's not explored. I have an idea that I want to portray in the thing, why he does that. Yeah. Um, as there are people who make very cogent arguments that he's gay and they're gay together. Uh, I don't personally think that, but some people do. That's kind of one of the fun mysteries, though, about the characters. You don't really know what is what's up with him and women. Yeah, and, <laughs> and possibly why he's able to prevail. Yes, because if he was a womanizer, we'd say, "Yeah, we've seen that." Thank, right. Thank you. Right. He's he's def, you know he he definitely is not a womanizer in the canon. No, of course but not. Watson is kind of a romantic. I wouldn't call him a womanizer, but there is a statement in canon that he has a knowledge of women on three continents. So he's gotten around, and he very much notices the ladies, but in a very um, chivalrous and, you know, in a Victorian gentleman's way, in a very yeah. nice way. And and both of them want to help women uh, who come to them for help. They're very generous and caring about this. So they're not, you know, there's no women hating. And there's really, I don't see a derogatory uh, stance on either of their parts. Right. Holmes is just rude to everyone. <laughs> It's sort of indiscriminate. It doesn't have to do with their, their being female. Yeah, and you saying that he is in love with his work. Mm -hmm. In writing about the cocaine, it seemed, too, that you said like the addiction to work is stronger than his addiction to cocaine. Yes, I think the addiction to work is his primary um, his primary addiction, if you would. And he, I mean, he's only really happy, I think, when he's on a case. It's That's portrayed in canon very clearly it's in here as well i think if we were to look at homes now and with the way we think of um addictions and so forth i think we might call him mildly bipolar uh we might and he uses work to to maintain his his energy and and focus and happiness um we also might call him mildly asperger's because he can get so focused that he he just like becomes oblivious to the effect he's having on people and sometimes can't read them in a certain kind of way. Right. We didn't have words for the um, Asperger's and bipolar back then, right? Not really. Although uh, the artistic temperament was sometimes a euphemism for bipolar. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah. It was a euphemism for several things, actually, in the Victorian era. It, it could also mean homosexual. So, so for example, um, uh, the... Uh, um, Oscar Wilde was a friend of Arthur Conan Doyle and um, 
he, you know about the story of Oscar Wilde, right? Do you know he's he was a In famous writer, and yeah, and he he's basically he was a remarkable artist whose career was basically destroyed by allegations of homosexuality, and he was jailed for this, and he and he suffered in jail horribly, and and he was never quite the same. So it was a, quite a tragedy. I actually saw a wonderful play about that in London recently. Um, what was it called? Uh, I can't remember. Never mind. Oh, don't worry, <laughs> I can't remember. I'll look it up and let you know though. Sure. Um, but um, so 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 uh, the artistic temperament was sometimes equated with um, with that, uh, but it was also equated with a lot of other extraneous weird things, such as hygienic dressing. Like, what does that mean? That was a whole woman's movement where they wanted to get rid of corsets and they wanted to wear loose flowing clothes so that they could be comfortable and free and they wanted to ride bicycles. All of this was actually in the service of freedom, uh, movement and freedom, because they were very restricted by their clothing. So so all, a, a number of strange movements were connected to artistic at that time. Interesting. And the lack of a specific definition just makes it more interesting. Yeah. Had they said bipolar, we would have said, oh, I, I get it. Well, a very emotional man. You know, he's he's up and down. You know, it's like this was, you know, artistic, whatever, whatever that means. He's, you know, because artistic also, even now, means when you say someone is artistic, you often think, well, they're gifted. And they can see things that others can't. There's definitely gifts to that uh, and powers to that. Um, but they all you also think of it as a vulnerability because they're kind of emotionally up and down, right? And they're vulnerable emotionally. It's just fascinating, like, that the word temperament is, yeah. like, added to it. I, yeah. I think, I, I mean, temperament has, like, is... I feel like it has a negative connotation, right. even though it doesn't actually have one, like, on right. paper. But it just makes it seem, like, more aggressive, you know, like, hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I, I, yeah, maybe because the word temper is part of it. But yeah. yeah. I, I think of it as more of a, a, like their constitutional makeup. In other words, some people are kind of very steady all the time, and that's their nature. Other people, uh, you know, have more fluctuations of energy and, and mood. And, um, you know, there's a there's a gift to that because when the, you're in the up phase, you, you know, Holmes is, you can't keep up with him on a case. He's just focused and he has energy to spare. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He just gets the job done much the way an artist does, you know, as, you know, somebody creating a play or writing a movie or, you know, a painting or whatever, they get this burst of incredible energy. Um, and then, you know, this is fatiguing. So the, the body reacts and crashes. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the mood goes with it. And to get it back, like, sometimes he'll turn to cocaine. He will, yeah. So when he's not working, he, he, he misses that, that adrenaline push that he had, you know, et cetera. But again, I, I, I was really interested in the, in, the, in the gift side of the artistic nature, um, which is really, like I started to say, is seeing things that other people don't see. You know, in a painting, you, you know, an impressionist painter sees many, many colors where we just might see blue. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, there's purple, draughts of gold. I mean, they see more. And then also they see, they make pattern out of chaos. So they see a, a complicated industrial scene and they, they pick out the, the silhouette and the puff of smoke and suddenly it's a beautiful painting because they made something special out of that chaotic vision. So similarly, Holmes can see a million clues. He can walk to into a murder scene and see a million clues and talk to somebody and pick up a million things about them, but pick out the salient details that really mean something. And that is artistic. Absolutely. There's so many different 
like complex parts of the book from the missing statue and the duke and the child and the artistic temperament where did it start for you the story oh well that's a good one <laughs> that's a good question jeffrey i um I decided to uh, set, spend some time with Sherlock Holmes. I, when I sat down to write a novel, I thought, um, I'm going to be spending at least a couple of years on this. I, who do I want to be with for that long? So it was definitely Holmes and Watson because I love them. And then I thought, okay, if I'm going to write a novel-length thing, it needs actually some thematic content. And I just needed to find an arena that interested me. And Art in the Blood is Liable to Take the Strangest Forms is a quote from Conan Doyle in The Greek Interpreter. And in it, Holmes is referring to his temperament, but also that Mycroft has it, and it's inherited. And it's because he his um, grandmother is the sister of the artist Vernet. So he posits that you know weren't there a couple of Vernets yeah there there were three three really famous Vernets and they were a a grandfather a father and a son and they were all really interesting people they're in my annotations by the way I have annotations oh I didn't actually read that part I'll say (laughs) (laughs) the annotations are not actually present in the book but in the back there's a link to them on my website and if some people really love the historical details so if you do they're there so and one of the Vernays. Yeah, one of the Vernays was related to Holmes. Well, they all were by, by blood. So so he says, you know, because I have art in the blood, you know, I'm, I'm this way. <laughs> I'm this, this kind of emotional kind of guy, basically. Um, and uh, Wait, I, I didn't realize reading that quote that it was like in his body blood. Yeah, I thought it was like art like on the blood on the floor. No, no. Art He's in the blood. the artistic temperament and it's in his blood. It's, yes, he inherited. inherited. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so art in the blood. So that so you asked my entry point to the book and that was it. I thought, you know, I want to explore what that means. What his artistic temperament what it gives him and what it costs him. And of course, you know, we all write from ourselves, you know. Um, and so, you know, my mother's an artist. I'm an artist. And this is a topic that's of interest to me. And I do think there are benefits and costs to being artistic. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I feel them. I see them in my family. And um, Conan Doyle, uh, by the way, was uh, his father was an artist and as his, was his uncle. So he had a lot of art in the blood himself. And his father didn't do well. His father was a very talented man, but he ended up in an asylum and uh, was kind of a disaster, unfortunately. So um, Conan Doyle had mixed feelings about art in the blood himself. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So you sat down wanting to write a book. You knew what was Sherlock Holmes. I knew it was Sherlock Holmes, and I, and, and I fixated on art in the blood early on. And then I thought, well, how to spin a plot out of that? Um, I've been a screenwriter and, and working in the movie business for about 30 years. So um, plots need a lot of structure, and especially a mystery does, because um, I, I personally have some pet peeves about mysteries. Like, I don't want to rabbit out of the hat. Right. I, and, and I also um, uh, I don't, didn't want to see the old Conan Doyle deductions recycled in my book. I wanted all new Sherlockian deductions. So I had a few kind of goals there. And I thought, how can I connect a case to to this art in the blood well one of the key people in it the the, the client the french singer is an artist she's a great artist uh, and she has the artistic temperament as well but what does that mean um and how how does she handle that as a woman because you have to handle it kind of differently yeah <laughs> as a woman especially back then um so that got interesting to me and then i also was fascinated because at that time this is 1888 
collecting art was a very big deal among the upper classes. So, um, you know, the... Uh, um, trying to think of the name of it. I'm just the, blanking. The Nike? Yeah. yeah. Well, no. the Nike... Yeah. Anyway, there's, there's, there, there were very famous collections and there were arguments. They were It was the height of the empire and so they were kind of... Some say raping and pillaging places and taking art. On the other hand, some people say preserving it for the future. That's arguable. Anyway, so... But in any case, it was a big deal to collect beautiful art, uh, ancient art. And um, so I, I, put, I put an art collector at the center of all of this as well. Because that's another way of expressing artists. If you're not an artist yourself, you may collect art. And then what does that mean exactly? Right. And how, how do you say the name of the Nike, the Marseille? Marseille Nike. It, it, was, it was called the Marseille Nike because in Mar- it, was, it was taken from where it was uh, excavated and it was brought to Marseille and then it, was, it vanished there in a very bloody robbery. So the, the, the press of the time dubbed it the Marseille Nike. Oh, uh, so it did actually vanish during it, that time. Yes. So it, it's it was, a big statue a big to statue. go missing. Yes, it is. <laughs> so it was quite, quite it's an like accomplishment. bigger than both of us. <laughs> yeah, bigger than both of us put together, yes. Yeah, it's not something you'd like put in your pocket and like run away with. No, no, it's a big thing. Big, big thing. <laughs> with wings. Wow, yeah, and no head at that time. Well, I don't, the, the, the one that, you know, we talk about is, is the, the winged victory of Samothrace, which is in the, in, in the, uh, Louvre in a very prominent position. And that is, that is the Nike that we all think of as, and it's considered one of the most beautiful things in the world. Um, and it's, it's kind of as you, as you walk in the main entrance of the Louvre, it's like there and it's stunning. Uh, and you're right, it's headless and, and so forth. And, and at one point in the, in the book, um, Holmes takes Watson to the Louvre and they're looking at it and Holmes is like, he's got no head. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> he's, he's getting tired, but <laughs> he hasn't seen pictures like we have, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. wow. And then what kind of medical research did you do? Oh, I love the medical research. So, Why is that? <laughs> I don't, all my life I've wanted to be a doctor and I think it's one of my, you know, secret, you know, alternate professions <laughs> or something. Um, but, but Watson is a medical doctor. Uh, in the canon, he doesn't do a lot of doctoring though. I don't know why that is, because Conan Doyle was a physician. He he was a, an eye surgeon. Uh, but anyway, what, um, I went to the Wellcome Library, which is a library of historical medical stuff in London. And um, I just started looking up. I knew that I was going to put various characters in, in physical jeopardy. They were going to have, uh, they were going to face, well, of course we have cocaine, but they're also going to face um, blood loss and shock um, and... Um, dehydration and so forth and I uh, uh, and, fr- and getting really really cold uh, freezing and so forth so I thought how, how are these things treated in 1888 what did they do for these things and that got me some very interesting um, results wow and as you said you are primarily a filmmaker you for everyone who doesn't know we're at the screen plays for Tron films mm-hmm. one of the writers on that did you ever want to Obviously, we have Sherlock on film. Did you ever want to bring him to film, though? Oh, sure. <laughs> you still have that want. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, I've been in the movie business for a long time. And, and, you know, this is a very visual book. So, of course, I can imagine it as a movie. But also, by the same token, um, I used to work for the studios. And, you know, I was, you're taught to think of the zeitgeist and what, yeah. And it feels like there's so much Sherlock out there. I really didn't set out to do this to make a hit for the movies because I felt like there was already a lot. Um, I teach writing, by the way, at, at UCLA Extension. I teach screenwriting. And one of the things I say to my students is uh, most 
most writing teachers say, write what you know. And I don't. I don't say that. I say, write what you love. Because if you write what you love, it, you'll you'll have enough energy to the to bring to it to take the amount of time it takes to do it well, and also the love for it will show up on the page. So I love Sherlock Holmes, and I said I don't care how commercial it is or isn't. This is how I want to spend my time. Wow! And you also have a second book deal, so it's I like do. <laughs> how is that? So this book fits into the canon in like December. Is there another hole you found? Yes. To, oh, really? <laughs> How many holes? Yes. <laughs> well, I have a two book deal and an option on a third, and I'm I'm in the middle of the second one now. It takes place a year later, and uh, it has to do with ghosts and the whiskey business, and it's called Unquiet Spirits. Oh, because they're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Has many meanings. Yes. Oh, interesting. And so he didn't. Um, Doyle kill Sherlock off at one point. He did. He did. I think it was eighteen ninety something, ninety three, maybe. The final it, it, problem. Yeah, he killed him off because he got sick of writing him, and he was like, "Done. I'm just so done with this." He he really thought of Sherlock Holmes as as the lesser of his writings, although his mother told him otherwise, and. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and he he denigrated the, those stories and, and thought his other work was better. So he, he was tired of them, but there was such a you know hue and cry, and also a financial incentive that he returned to writing Sherlock Holmes, much to everyone's delight. Did he? So did he bring him back in the story or when the short in the short story? Or he a actually book? he actually brought him back to life. In in fact, Watson, one of the stories, thinks he's dead, and he, he comes back. Oh my god! It's not a great, as a ghost. No, not as a ghost, as himself. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. fascinating. And then, can you just tell me um, about the perfume before we go? Sure. Jicky, is it? <laughs> yes, Jicky. Jicky's a really cool perfume. It's the oldest uh, continuously produced perfume in the world. It was invented the year after this story, and er, it came out a year after in 1889. Although it appears in this story because the client has gotten a, an advance copy oh. of it. Jicky is a un, the first unisex perfume. And over the years, it's still made. Over the years, it's been the signature scent of incredibly alluring individuals, such as Sarah Bernhardt, near this time and place, um, and Brigitte Bardot, but also Sean Connery and Cary Grant. So these four people, it was their signature scent. And anyway, it's in here, and it's a very nice scent. Oh, how funny. That's It's amazing that it's also lasted. Yes, it is. It's kind of an unusual... I. I think it smells a little bit like gingerbread and vanilla and it's sort of fresh and it's it's really nice. It's unisex, right? It is a unisex. So scent. they claim. Well, these four people have loved it and they're definitely two different sexes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I don't I can't confirm that. But yeah, no no. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> That's <kidding>. true. <laughs> this was so much fun. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. And where can everybody find you online? Uh, uh I'm at www.macbird.com and I also at macbird on Twitter. Great. All right, guys, this was another great episode. Until next time, you can find all of our content on YouTube, iTunes, and of course, bookcircleonline.com. Goodbye. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menunos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle. <laughs>